Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Mark. Glory to you, Lord Christ. Jesus began to teach his disciples that the Son of Man must undergo great suffering, be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. He said all this quite openly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Turning and looking at his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. You are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. He called the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, those who lose their life for my sake, for the sake of the gospel, will save it. For what will it profit them to gain the whole world and forfeit their life? Indeed, what can they give in return for their life? Those who are ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of them the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise, Praise to you, Lord Christ. Jesus offers us today a most compelling image. Compelling and disturbing, I think, if we're listening to it closely. What's fascinating about the reading today from Mark is that Mark tells us that Jesus says all of this quite openly. And this is after a long series of stories where Jesus is saying, be quiet, don't tell anybody about this. Don't disclose this to anybody. Keep it quiet. Keep it quiet. Be quiet. Suddenly he is proclaiming something as if it is hiding in plain sight. And that is the compelling image that I want you all to take from today's service, and that is there is a truth for us in the heart of Lent and in the heart of our tradition that often hides in plain sight. And it is told openly, and yet it gets so easily obscured by our daily practice and our lives and everything that we inhabit in the world. We are meant to understand that what Jesus is delivering to us today is the cornerstone or kernel, if you like, of our faith. And we begin with that primordial story of faith, the faith of Abram and Sarai as they journey from their homeland, even as old people who are supposed to be settled. They leave everything behind, and Abram enters a covenant with God that is so fierce and so severe, the image that comes 
just a few precious verses before this in Genesis is God walking with a flaming torch through animals that have been sacrificed and divided in two. It's as if to say God is saying to Abraham, if I break this promise with you, I will be like these animals to you. Such a violent and profound image, but it is meant to be so searing and so profoundly visceral that God is saying, this is how much you can trust me. And today we hear the story of a name change, which is as ancient as it is contemporary to this day, many Christians take on new names at their baptism when they take on vows in religious life, whenever there is a major transition between the old life and the new. And Abram's name is changed to Abraham, which means the father of many. Sarai's name is changed in a little bit more subtle way, but it means princess, that she has now progeny that will come forth from this covenant. Something I hasten to add that she will laugh at a little bit later when it starts to get real, which is why she names her first son Isaac, which means laughter. Names mean something, you see. They mean something about who we are, where we come from, and in this case, they mean something about God's promise. In the middle of the first century, then, we get Paul's writing to the church in Rome, which is apparently in a struggle because the Jewish members of the community are asking, do the Gentile members of the community have to take on the whole of the law? in order to be considered part of the faithful. This is not an academic question for Paul. Paul was raised as a faithful Jew, and he also studied Greek philosophy and rhetoric in Tarsus. And we sometimes laugh a little bit at Paul's language. It's very elevated, very flowery. And sometimes he seems to stumble over himself, but we have to remember that Paul has no Christian theology to fall back on. He is basically creating the cornerstone of Christian theology in Romans, which is a remarkable statement if you think about it. And he is trying to convince the Jewish Christian community in Rome that Gentiles have exactly the same stake as they do in this new faith in Christ. And he points out to them something that would probably be pretty obvious to them. Abraham predates the law, and his faith predates the law. In other words, Paul is saying there is something greater than the law here in Christ. And that is faith itself. The law is still important, Paul will go on to explain. It is part of the identity of a people, and its practice is about living into that faith, but the faith is what comes first. 
And so what is that faith? We take all of these ancient texts and understandings and we bring them up to our present day and something that very profound has happened in our world in just the past couple of weeks. And it has been hiding for many of us in plain sight. And it took one of my colleagues writing a reflection this week for me to finally see it. And it is the story of someone you've heard of, Alexei Navalny. Now we all know the political story of Navalny, how he has been an opposition figure in Russian politics for a number of years. He has been a thorn in Putin's side and how he was a number of years ago poisoned while in Europe in an attempt to assassinate him. What you may not know is that the inspiration for his return to Russia even after that experience did not come simply from moral conviction, but came from his faith. He testified at his trial, kangaroo court, that it was in 2021, that it was his Christian faith that gave him the courage to return to Russia, even though he faced certain death. And it was not a Christian faith he had grown up with. It was a Christian faith he had acquired as an adult. Like many Russians, he was born and raised as an atheist. But somewhere along the way, he found the gospel and he encountered in it something that he said in his testimony greatly simplified his life and his moral compass and made acts of courage profoundly easy. Because he had taken on board what Jesus is talking about in today's gospel. And we get confused because we often think that Jesus' death is somehow a requirement of God, and we often think that the message is for our redemption, yes, but then doesn't demand anything of us. It's an assumption that we stumble over often, but Navalny got it. Navalny understood that to offer one's life for something that is good, and to offer one's life in the resistance of evil, however small or great, is in fact what Jesus means when he says, take up your cross and follow me. For those who lose their life for my sake and the sake of the gospel will gain it. Navani understood that and face death with enormous courage as a consequence. And I invite you to reflect with me just briefly on the reality of what it means that now the Kremlin has a dilemma. And the dilemma looks like this. Tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of people showing up to remember Navalny who may now be more influential in death than he was in life. And no tyranny, and no statecraft, 
can touch that. Most of us will not have to be confronted with that level of moral courage in the face of great evil. But Navalny is out in front of us showing us that in fact all of us are called to this way of life. Most of us will be resisting smaller evils than that but we will be called upon to resist nonetheless. That is our vocation as a Christian people. It may be as simple as standing up against an injustice in the workplace, in our family lives, in a friendship, seeing a stranger abused on the street and stepping into the breach, saying what was right and what needs to be said that is right in a community even like ours, a community of faith, where, as you all know, our moral courage falters from time to time. Someone needs to speak up in those moments and say and do what is right. That's very different, I think, from believing that our suffering is somehow by itself redemptive. No, that's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying that we need to be suffering for the right reasons. That's in the resistance of all the ways that evil touches our lives. And then we will find new life. And we may be surprised by what we find. Lent is a season of clarifying, of straining clear our spiritual lives, of sorting out those things that we take on to ourselves, sometimes maybe to punish ourselves, or that we bear because we have failed to resist. And working that out, letting it go, and focusing our energy on the places where resistance and goodness and mercy are life-giving. Many of our choices will be small. Some of them will be hard. But at the end of the day, they all matter. And that's what Jesus means when he invites us to take up our cross and follow him. And in doing so, enter that new world and new life that Navalny already knew, even before he returned to Russia. A life that cannot be touched by the powers of this world. A life that inspires and brings hope even in the darkness of war and tyranny. A new world God is about the business of giving to each and every one of us.
Thank you for listening to this sermon podcast from the Episcopal Church of Our Savior, Mill Valley, California. We are a growing community welcoming those seeking to deepen their relationship with God and to journey in faith with God's people through the breaking of bread and in service to others in Christ's name. You may reach us by phone at 415-388-1907, search for us online, or visit our website at OurSaviorMillValley.org. We wish you God's peace, and we hope to greet you in person very soon.